Attention, attention please, stand by for another episode of When Humanists Attack. Hi everybody, I'm Vincent, Vincent Downing, your very own self-proclaimed internet expert, here for another episode of When Humanists Attack. And as always, at least so far, we are featuring another human. One Anita DeVard, a well-known anonymous deckhand on the Death Star itself, here to enlighten and instruct us as to the protocols of scientific truth, such as they are, as well as bring us up to date and tell us about her story and credentials that entitle her to instruct us in such a gravid and gravitous subject. And hello, Ms. DeVard. It is a pleasure to have met you some 20 odd years ago. Uh, and in full disclosure and uh, transparency, Ms. DeVard here is the spouse of one of the founding board members of When Humanists Attack, just so that we are not open to any charges of nepotism. Good evening again, Ms. DeVard, and it is a pleasure to have met you. I'd like to get right into this because we've got a lot of ground to cover, scientific truth and uh, scientific uh, literacy. This is very important to us on the part of our viewers and also ourselves. If we could get into your background and hear some about your story, uh, your personal story, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll work our way towards these things. I was born in 1963 in Groningen in the Netherlands, a small university town in the north of the Netherlands. Um, and my father was a physicist and that was very important um, to him, to me, to everyone around us. Um, and he was a scientist first and foremost. My mother had to stop studying when she had children, which she regretted greatly later on, but she was a housewife. Um, and she was also the wife of the professor and a professor was a very important thing to be. Um, and when I was a little kid, the mail would come for my father, which um, in Dutch would say Professor Dr. Hendrik de Vaart. So it was a very long title. And I always thought one day the mail will come and will say Professor Dr. Anita de Vaart. And I thought, well, I just have to keep going long enough and I'll get all those titles as well. Um, and my father, I was very close to my father. I was the third child, uh, third daughter. Um, and there was quite a big gap between my two sisters and myself, because as my mother later told me, she had two miscarriages before having me. So they, they very much wanted a child and they had assumed I was a boy. And they talked about me as he, and they only really came up with boys' names. And then I came out a girl. Um, but that didn't stop my dad from treating me as the son that he was hoping he would have. Not in, a, not in an unpleasant way, but I have the feeling that having my mother and my two sisters around, there was a lot of female energy in some form. None of them were interested in math or interested in science um, and really shared any of his passions. Um, and so I'm, I'm never quite sure if it was really my 
my own proclivity or whether it was steered a little bit. I think it was a combination of both. But from a young age on, I was very close to my father and I would go with him to the lab and I would talk about all kinds of subjects with him. And I remember, for instance, distinctly being six years old and I had already been playing with erector sets and of course with Legos, but with a lot of construction toys. Um, and at that point he was like, well, you're old enough now. You can, you can start learning how to solder. So he had a, a, a very uh, large amount of electronics because that was one of the subjects he was really specializing in. So he gave me a box of huge resistors, resistors that were this big. The old resistors were very large um, and a soldering iron and I could just go and solder some resistors together. So in that sense, I suppose, not just science, but also technology was, was in my life from a very young age. Um, but in particular, he always encouraged me very much to ask questions. And we had, we had a game that um, if I could come up with a question that he couldn't answer, I would get a prize, I think a chocolate bar or something like that. So I was always, he was always challenging me to ask questions and then talking about how to get at the answers. So what about your school years? How about uh, grammar school, as we would call it? Yeah, elementary school. Yeah, I, I also, I was very precocious. Um, I learned to read by myself. Also, I had these older sisters, so I could read by myself when I was four, I think. And so I was uh, skipped ahead. I was skipped the, the grade that would be the first, the second grade here, I think. So I went straight from kindergarten into second grade, I suppose. Um, and so I was always younger than all the other kids in my class. And I was kind of ahead, mm. uh, again, because I'd been talking with my father about all these topics. And I remember very, ex and my, of course, my sisters were eight and 11 years older. So I was always experiencing the world as it would be a decade hence. I still am. Um, mm. And they were always talking about their homework when I was five and six and seven. They were, you know. Uh, 13 and 14 and 15 and homework was very important and I couldn't wait to start and get homework and then one day we were starting multiplication and I got this little booklet I even have it still upstairs and it it had the tables of multiplication and on every it was a tiny little booklet and on every page it said zero times one equals and then zero times two equals and then on the next page it said one times one equals all the way through 12 and it went all the way through 12 times 12 I believe hmm. And so I took it home and um, very excitedly, and I, I said to my dad, look, I have homework, I have homework. And we went through it and we filled it in and I came back the next day and I was like, look, look, you know, teacher, I did my homework. And she was very nonplussed because we were supposed to work on multiplication for the rest of the year. I was very eager. It wasn't that I was particularly good at math, but um, it was just, there was an eagerness. And my dad, of course, also had that eagerness for me to get started on real things. That kind of set the tone for the rest of grammar school. <laughs> yeah. uh, the eagerness continued, uh, I gather. In Holland, okay. you have first through sixth is one part of your school. Then you get a huge ah. test when the kids are in fifth grade, when they're 11. Mm -hmm. And after that test, they're sorted into schools that either will lead you to university or not. Um, and this is a very, very classist system. It's quite easy to go down. It's very difficult to go up. My father's family were doctors and lawyers and doctors and lawyers all the way back to when the record extends. At some point they were farmers, but they were rich farmers who had lots of laborers. And so there was, 
there was a sense of definitely of entitlement uh, of uh, not so much arrogance or snobbery, but an, an assumption that you will definitely go to university. Um, and also an assumption that I would go to the high school that I went to, which was an independent gymnasium. You're supposed to be so smart that all the math and science stuff happens automatically. So you don't spend that much time on it. Um, and you're expected to go on to the university after that. I was even in the same theater club as my grandfather uh, had been and my father and my sister. So so very much stepping into this sort of legacy of Devarda at that particular school. Um, and that was, it was all, the work was fine. I wasn't particularly good at physics or math uh, or chemistry or <laughs> biology, any of the sciences, really, to be, to be honest with you, I was very good at language, but I didn't mm. think that was a serious topic, because I mean, it wasn't science. I'm sure you've heard of this hierarchy where, where sort of math is the pinnacle of everything, and then comes physics, and then comes chemistry, and then comes biology, and then comes everything else. Um, and yeah. so I very much grew up with that sort of, it's kind of the nobility of the sciences, you know? And so you're like right okay. out of the king as a physicist. The kings are the mathematicians, but you're, you're once, you're like a baron or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good enough. Exactly. And, and much better than those lowly chemists, uh, oh. let alone biologists, you know, who wouldn't oh. know a, an equation if it bit him in the ass. Yeah. The knights and the squires. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We don't, we don't, I mean, we talk to them, of course, because we, one must be polite, but yeah. My grandfather was um, actually a Mennonite, but he was a very strong pacifist. He was, he very strongly believed that war was wrong. He was a very, very sweet, sweet, kind man. During the First World War, the church advocated that um, boys join the war. And, and although Holland was neutral during the First World War, but they advocated for the war. And in the Second World War also, they uh, suggested mm. that boys uh, go fight. And this turned my, my grandfather really, he left the church and he became a very fervent atheist. And he was quite convinced that the, that the church, which was, which was still very, very prevalent at the time, the, the thinking that went behind the, the religious doctrine was a terrible thing, especially for children. Mm. Um, because these children were told at a very young age that they were evil and there was nothing they could do about it. And their entire lives, you know, they had the original sin or I'm not sure what it's called, but they were told that they were bad and there wasn't that much they could do. You know, if they spent their entire lives in abnegation, maybe they would, you know, squeak by, but overall the deed was done and everything was, was terrible. And, also this sense of that, that God would see every single thing you did. So you, you couldn't run away from it. It wasn't what you did. It was what you thought that was being policed. And my grandfather thought that was just the worst thing to tell a little kid. And, and, and it made many people, of course, very, um, it, it, it was very traumatic, I think. I, I think it's true that, that raising a child in such an environment uh, can, can be quite traumatic. So he was an, he was an atheist. But for my father, the church, what he really resented and detested more than anything was dogma. The idea that things are irrefutably what they are because that's what they are. The idea that dogmatism in the sense of, well, I know things because I know them and I don't need to explain them to you because I am more powerful. I am in a position where I get to say what we know 
this was this was absolutely important to him and 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 he balked hmm. against it and resented it and and that is something that that i think to me is the essence of being a scientist and at least in my growing into that term in my becoming a scientist in my always having been a scientist it's really this fight against dogmatism and this idea that not everything can be debated. So, so in science, in principle, everything can be debated by and questioned by anyone at any point. There is nothing that cannot be questioned, I think. And that was kind of very, very much at the heart of what I grew up hearing about and, and what I, the, the, I guess the pattern of thought that I grew into. Um, and at the time, my father really applied that also to this was the 60s, late 60s and early 70s, of course, hit in Holland like it did in France. Um, so there were a lot of socialist students and people who railed against the way that things were. And my father said, these socialists are just as dogmatic as the parents that they that that raised them in a very strict religious way. And he said, socialism is just a new religion. Uh... Um, because they they are similarly they have they are dogmatic and they know things and you're not allowed to question what they know and so he very much resented that as well. How to provide people with the uh, basic tools to escape dogmatism is uh, a big reason of why we're here. I've seen or heard children who are not allowed to ask questions, and it always shocked me. Um, it's almost worse than than getting hit. I remember standing with my father in, in line for an ice cream. There was an ice cream cart in the park in front of our house where you married us 20 years ago, Vincent, yeah, by the way. Okay. Um, and, um, and a little boy asked a question of his mother, and she said, quiet, children don't ask questions. And I was like, I was shocked. I was like, no, wow. that's what children do is they right. ask questions. You're supposed to ask questions. And I was just completely shocked that wow. that was the yeah. point of being a kid, being alive, but being a kid was to ask questions. And, and I was just, I was just shocked. Um, it was the first time as a child and I was maybe 12 and the boy was maybe six, but I remember, you know, sometimes you get a peek in how other people are raised. And I was, I just was totally appalling. Shocked. And yeah. then, of course, a, a, a child raised to not ask questions is going to be kind of an adult yes. who doesn't ask questions. Yes. So uh, on and on you go in the, uh, in the hamster wheel. Yes. Um, exactly. Could you quickly tell us? What did you study in, uh, in so college? So I studied physics. <laughs> okay. Um, more to spite my father than any other reason, because I said that I wanted <laughs> to study physics. And he said, well, you could. I mean, you're smart enough, but you don't have the stamina. You're not going to finish. Um, you know, you just, you just, you're, there are going to be times where you're like, oh, well, this is too hard. I'm just giving up. So, so I couldn't give up because I would have been proving him right. So I had to finish. So I did graduate, but ah. I was terrible at it. And I didn't like it at all. It was not oh. at all my, my scene. Um, but I did finish. And being female, I think, helped me greatly because everybody was willing to overlook all sorts of things because I was a single female <laughs> in a class of 30 guys. Like, And if they would have flunked me, they would have had zero. So, uh, so I think that, that helped me tremendously. But um and it, it later very much helped me to have done it because I, it was one of those times where I knew uh, that, you know, I could do anything if I really put my mind to it, first of all. 
And secondly, one of the reasons that they're at the top of the self-perceived pyramid is that they are so arrogant that they think that physics is the hardest subject of study. Again, except for math, we, we, we leave the, 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 the mathematicians up on their lonely cloud in the sky. But other than that, it's harder than anything else. And therefore, if once you've done physics, once you've gotten your chops in physics, you can understand anything else. And so in my later life, so after I studied physics, I briefly went to the Soviet Union um, and found I was really not a good physicist, but I was pretty good at editing other people's papers. And I had applied for a job at a science publishing company. So in 1988, I joined the company where I still work today, um, which was then North Holland Physics Publishing, but it was part of a larger company called Elsevier. Elsevier, right. Yes, yes. It might be a good time to explain my moniker because Elsevier is perceived in a very, very negative light by many scientists. And I, we can go into why that is the case. In principle, a lot of scientists think Elsevier charges too much for their journals. That's the main point. It's often referred to as the evil empire. The Death Star. Um, yes, or the Death Star. And so often when I meet scientists they, and I say they work for, I work for Elsevier, they're very, very gently, they try to very carefully say that maybe not everybody likes Elsevier all that much. Um, so I usually try to, you know, beat them to the punch with a quip. And I say, yes, I work for the Death Star, but it's the part where the alien ships dock. So I can help you find the reactor core if you want to blow, right, blow it up. Because right. I mean it, honestly. I, I am fine destroying all of science publishing if it supports science. I, I really am. One of the most impressive people I've ever had the honor of meeting, John Perry Barlow. I don't know if that name means anything to anyone out there, but he was not only a lyricist for the Grateful Dead, he was also the person who started the Internet Freedom Foundation and a, just an mm. astounding intellect and a, and a remarkable man all around. Um, and I was at a conference where he was sort of the keynote and we were, you know, standing in line getting coffee and he asked me what I did and I did my joke about the Death Star and he looked at me and he said, you mean that? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> and he said, good for you. And, I, and it was so remarkable because most people just laugh and they think, yeah, well, she works for this big cor corporation. She doesn't really mean that she wants to destroy it. But I'm like, no, really, I will. I will gladly. <laughs> now that actually, in a way, does bring us to scientific truth. I realized I wasn't a very good physicist, um, but I wanted to serve science in a way. And, and that was very, both consciously and subconsciously, sort of carrying on my father's legacy. My father also mm -hmm. set up uh, very many occasions where he would, at every opportunity, interact with the general public and tell them about the miracles of science. And he was convinced that we should see science as a, a, an innately human endeavor mm. that needs to be shared with the globe, much in the same way that art is, right? So you, you wouldn't think that people would not be allowed to listen to Beethoven just because they can't play the cello or that they wouldn't be able to see a Picasso because they can't draw. They can't draw. And in very similar ways, he always thought that the, 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 the feats of the great gigantic feats that humanity has performed in developing scientific theories, in doing scientific experiments, in building things based on science should not be, should not be you know, left only to a very small group of practitioners. It should really be shared with people at large because it's a hugely important part of our culture. 
And and conversely, just like people will only pay taxes for the museum if they have a if they really like paintings, right. Um, right. you know, you wouldn't pay a lot of money if you were never allowed in the building. But given that you can go to the Met and you can look at the paintings, you're like, yeah, no, I'll support that. Some of my tax dollars can go there. And similarly, it's imperative for science to be uh, beholden and to explain itself to the, to the world at large and not set itself apart. He always thought, and I completely agree with him, that it's it's more or less the duty of anyone who is lucky enough to spend their time in some way or another interacting with scientific experiments or the 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 the, the products of science. Um, to explain that science to a larger audience and and to work on making it explainable and to make sure that um, that what they do is is well understood enough that they can explain it to a larger audience. And excellent. So, yeah. So excellent. you get get kind of back to that that original point um, together with the idea that there are no dogmas. The other point is. Um, that if you truly understand what you're doing, you can explain it to anyone. And to me, I, it, it was an incredible moment where mm. um, my I I met I and mean, we were talking about this over dinner mm. when I met my first Nobel Prize winner, and this was a man called Rudolf uh, Mossbauer, um, and he won the Nobel Prize at a very young age for something called the Mossbauer effect, which is something complicated happening within the atom. Um, and I met him and my father would study the Musbauer effect and he would go to conferences about the Musbauer effect and, and, and such. And so I thought this Rudolf Musbauer must be, you know, a giant and very old. And he was actually quite young, but I, I sat at a table with him at a conference that my father took me along with after I'd studied physics. Um, and he explained that he would always do the freshman introductory physics courses. He would always teach them. Um, and he said, and I, I ask my students, if the moment that you don't understand anything about what I'm saying, I want you to raise your hand. I will not hold you accountable for not knowing what I'm saying. I'm not asking you to raise your hand so that you will understand more. But the moment that I'm not completely understandable to everyone in the audience, I know that I don't really understand what I'm talking about. So he said- That you, would bring you, us back to uh, humility. Yes. Now, so if you truly it? understand your subject, if you truly deeply understand it, you can you can explain it to anyone. As a writer, it never helps me to blame my audience for not understanding my writing. Right. When I was a young writer, I did that all the time. Well, you know, you just got to blah, 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 blah. And at some point, and bring up, bringing us back to humility, I began to understand that this isn't helping my writing, just blaming my audience. It's less about the ability to explain something. I think that comes with the sort of relentless um, self-discipline in forcing yourself to admit that you don't really, truly, deeply, fundamentally understand something, which is terribly important in physics. Because you, you, can, you can model things with an equation, which is a lot of what physics does, and that's fine. And it works and you can do engineering on it. Is the the brutal rigorousness, I think you said, to be able to not mistake the map for the territory, not mm -hmm. is it mistake the equation for what it's 
equationing or however, you know, however you would want to put it, not to mistake right. the and menu not be for the satisfied meal. by a shallow level of understanding. Um, again, I, th it, I think the parallel with music is pretty apt. There are a lot of scientists who do music. Um, and I remember when my kids were first learning to play pieces, both kids, one plays piano, the other plays clarinet. And in the beginning, they would learn the notes and then they could play a little tune. And they were like, oh, I can play, you know, jingle bells. And in the beginning, they were very proud and very happy that they could make these sounds and they could make them quicker and they could make them at the right, you know, speed and all of that. And at some point, it stopped being about them making sounds and it started being about what what the composer was trying to express. It started being about the music itself mm. and giving, I remember there was a point where Sebastian was giving a recital and he was really quite far in his mastery of the of classical piano. And I remember talking to him and he was a little nervous, but he really knew this piece and he loved this piece. And I said, well, now comes the point where you're no longer performing for, for your judges or performing for your teachers, but you're explaining the music to them. You're, you're, you are the, now the person in Dutch, we say the vertolker, the interpreter. You're the interpreter in this case of a Bach, I think it was Bach sonata. You're the one who gets to explain to them what Bach meant, right? So I think that, that sense of a, being a conduit, many scientists have this feeling and there's, there's an error in that, but, but, mm. but there's also a great joy in that, in that selflessness. But so you have the sense of being this conduit between a world out there, independent of humans, and then you as the observer trying to make sense of it. And if there is a chance that you can make some sense of it, of something that nobody ever has, it's fantastic. You're, you're, you're like a polar explorer and nobody's ever charted this part of the map before, right? So it's fantastic. And part of the reason it's fantastic is because you feel I'm the first one here and I'm doing something that nobody's done before. And so there's a certain pride in that. But part of it is also because you do feel that you're doing something, you're in touch with something that is definitely greater than yourself. And again, mm. I think similar to music or any form of art mm. where you feel you're channeling something that is not about you. It's about something bigger, something that is now accessible to humans. You're, you're one of the humans, you're one of the, the large globe full of human organisms who are all trying to sense and make, make sense of things and experience things. And you're a little you're a little blip on that, but you are able to take this thing and now make it comprehensible for humanity. And and you and you don't just do that alone. You do that in a community because no matter how solitary a scientist is, they always exist within a community. They exist standing on the shoulders of giants. They exist because of the people that came before them, and they exist for the people who come after them. Many great scientists, this is very prevalent in math, but other scientists say it as well. They know that they may have a student who can surpass them you know, very soon. They may be at the end of their careers. They may have spent their entire lives working as hard as they can to understand this one thing. And some kid who is 22 years old, who is an undergrad, will get it like that and will go places that they've never even thought one could go. And so again, the humility, but also the sense of being part of a lineage of carrying on this thinking from those who came before to those after, and you were a part in that. And so, so that's why I'm saying it's, it's a human endeavor, but it's also so satisfying because you're able to give, um, you're able to interpret, you're able to be a conduit for something 
that is that is superhuman that is that is okay. i don't mean superman but you know what i mean that is larger than humanity now we've been very philosophical we've gone from these fairly abstract but important ideas around humility around not mistaking the map for the territory around uh channeling something mm -hmm. something that's maybe from a part of yourself that's greater than the self that you're aware of as mm -hmm. i would think of it and now we've gotten into the relatively practical matter of well community yes. we're doing this as a part of a community let's talk more about these practical matters in science. To me, one of the core things that sets scientific endeavors apart from many other human endeavors is that it always all centers around a question that you're trying to find an answer to. At the beginning and the middle and the end of science is a question. There's a question that you're trying to understand something. Asking the right question is maybe the most valuable thing a scientist ever does in their life. The asking of the question and asking the right question in the right way, um, and, and by which I mean, can you, is there some way that you can get a little further on in, in terms of an answer? That's, that's, the, that's the mark of perhaps genius. <laughs> and, and it is hugely important. Asking the right first question means, can you finish your PhD or not? Means, can you write, a, can you publish your paper or not? And then the understanding of how your community goes about constructing an answer. And, and those can be very different. And that's how the domains differ. In astronomy, you ask a question about a stellar object. You're not going to ask a question about a plant. I mean, you could, but but mostly the questions about the plants are gonna ask, be asked within the realm of biology and the questions about the stars within the realm of astronomy. What was beautiful to me about this pandemic is that you immediately saw scientists trying to ask questions about, the, the, about COVID, about coronavirus too, um, coming from the viewpoint of their own domain. And what was great was that sometimes the questions would meet and you could make sense of it throughout. The art is to know what would bring you closer to an answer? And if you had the answer, what could you do with it? A hypothesis is what you think might be the answer. Do face masks protect you from coronavirus is an example. And you, that's, a, that's a question that you can ask. And the hypothesis is, yes, I think they do because you know there's material between me and the other person. So I think that the little droplets which carry the coronavirus will not go through a face mask. And then somebody says, well, okay, so that's your hypothesis, right? It's what you think might be true. Now, you say the next thing that comes is the experiment in this case. <laughs> in the experimental sciences like biology and physics, you can, in general, uh, construct an experiment. And then the, the, the craft of the science, not the art, but the craft, is to be able to conduct that experiment in such a way that everybody acknowledges that if you indeed conduct the experiment and the outcome is the way that you think, then you have proven your hypothesis, okay? So your experiment is, uh, for instance, I have a machine that blows water droplets and I can measure how big the water droplets are and I have a way of visualizing the water right, droplets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I can now put a light on it and I put, 
I do one without the cloth and I do with the other one with the cloth. And there were actually a lot of pictures like that published online. Sure. People happen to have those machines lying right. around. Right. So, then, so then you can say, right, so if we all agree that my machine is equal, is similar to the situation where somebody wears a face mask, and if we all agree that the water droplets are similar to the coronavirus, are we all in agreement? Yes, 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 yes. Then... I say that my hypothesis have been proven. And indeed, a face mask protects against the spread of coronavirus through my experiment. Now, where's the theory in that, right? So the theory is sort of a deeper understanding. The theory behind all this is that because of the nature of fabric, um, it stops uh, water particles from permeating through it. And mm. the theory behind that can be about the cohesion sure. of water droplets sure. and the structure of the fabric and all of that. Scientists, as far as I know, don't really like talking about truth. It makes us all a little shifty and uncomfortable mm. um, because it's really a human thing. You know, truth mm. is, I love uh, Bruno Latour, who's a French philosopher. And, and, and similar to truth for me is the word fact. I get very squeamish at mentions of the word fact. So they would say, you know, um, coronaviruses are generally known to transmit their uh, virus through spikes, right, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, we assume that the new coronavirus does that as well, hypothesis, um, because, you know, they're very similar and that's how these things happen, et cetera, et cetera. So we did this experiment. And so blah, 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 blah. Here's how we figured out that it, that it did that and it did that. And then it looked like it did indeed transmit it through Spike. And then it would say something like implicating that or suggesting that or which supports, which supports the idea that something where hedging is used, where they make their statement that indeed, indeed is used all the time at this point, indeed coronaviruses transmission does happen through the spike proteins or whatever, or they have spikes, whatever your point was at the, <sighs> of the paper. So mm -hmm. this is how scientists communicate. They communicate through papers and, and conversations that are much like the papers. And so in this, they don't say this is the truth. They say in this realm, which we're describing here, our, a common understanding at the moment is this. To check whether this little thing was true within this framework, we did all of these things. And we found that, which if you agree that this points to that, would indicate that right, indeed, okay. this is also part of that system. So you collectively create a system of understanding of why things work the way they work. But to call it truth is just really uncomfortable. Because tr what is truth? I mean, maybe after us, 50 years after us, somebody will come along and prove that it was all just nonsense, right? These are constructs that human make, humans make to better understand the world around them. And, and actually, my research is about the fact that if you look at the purely at the language, the language, the verbs form, the verb forms for, for writing about this, for writing about this truth, for about writing about this network of concepts that humans use to understand some topic of study is exactly the same way that the Greeks used to write about the workings of the gods, right? So these are our new Greek gods. Why are you jealous? Well, Athena drove jealousy into my heart. Why does the coronavirus transmit its, its, its virus? Well, spike proteins brought it into the membrane. These are, these are hmm. words that we use to represent a shared truth that we see working in day-to-day -day life. 
Um, and so, so that whole truth thing is, I think something that most scientists would actually shy away from. What they would embrace is the idea that everything can be questioned and you can ask people to back up any statement that they make. And that if you can't do that, you're out of the game, like you're not even playing. So, so this whole idea of, um, I'm, it's infuriating, but even my own family members say, well, I'm not sure I'll get the vaccine because you don't know what's in it. Well, actually, no, you do. You just don't understand it, right? But, or I have heard people say that mm. we don't know what the long-term effects is. Well, who, who said it won? And of course we don't know the long-term effects, but what are you comparing it to? Right, so right. Using hearsay as an argument and sowing doubt as an argument is incredibly irritating to anybody who thinks in a scientific manner. And and I agree with what you said earlier, Vincent, this is not, you know, scientists are all the way over here and everybody else is all the way over there. If, if, the, if the pandemic has shown us something, it's that we're all in this together and we all need the help, we, all the help we can get to process and understand what's going on and to know what we should do next and to know, you know, should we go out without a mask? Should we have people over for dinner? You know, to understand such straightforward behavior we all need to, to use all the tools we can get. All I'm saying is that the people who have a training or an interest in the way that scientists think would always question everything and would be convinced by things that they find acceptable evidence, that they find an acceptable representation of reality um, that they can go along with. Uh, to me, the mask experiment, I saw one picture of that and I was like, okay, no more, no more issues. I'm wearing a mask from now on. Um, and that they, and that they can get along with and that they can get to the bottom of it. If anybody knows it, they can find out what it is, I suppose. I kind of, I get squirmy when people start talking to me about the truth, because I always hear a capital T whenever that word is is used. What do you think the difference is between how a scientist thinks about the truth and how a non-scientist or the trained mind or an untrained mind think about the truth? At some point, I, I left my job at Elsevier. I moved to Boston and I started to get a Master of Arts in Teaching degree. And I did a degree, uh, a one-year program where I did was a student teacher at a high school. It was a um, high school with a lot of kids who were very poor and had not a lot of education before they came there. And also it was a high school where especially science was taught in a very old fashioned way. At Tufts where I was doing my master's degree, science education, I loved it because it was centered around the question. The idea was you should teach kids to ask questions and embrace their own questions because that is the true doing of science. And the way that they framed it, which my dad would have completely agreed with, was saying, you know, if you only teach kids things that other people have find, found out in science, it's like teaching them about art without ever allowing them to, to hold a pencil. So um, mm. the practice of science is done by asking questions. But the kids that I was teaching, I was given this, this class. It was a ninth grade general science class. And so a lot of these kids had only had elementary school and middle school class, and a lot of them had had no scientific background at home or in their elementary school, if they had even been in any kind of an elementary school. And what the teacher was teaching them was the parts of the cell, 
And when I took over the class, he was teaching them how to spell endoplasmatic reticulum. And which is absurd, of course, because it, and I asked them when I came into the class, do you know where the cell is? And they were like, yeah, cells are in animals. And I was okay, do all animals have cells? No, some, some animals have cells. Well, which animals have cells? Well, really little ones. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, of course I would think it's absurd to teach somebody to spell the parts of the cell if they have no clue what a cell actually is. But that was what a lot of science education was like. And so this teacher would stand there and he would dictate the answers to that, that they needed to write, write down. And then on the test, they needed to reproduce exactly the things that he said. The mitochondrion is the powerhouse of the cell. They didn't know what any of that meant, but they had to be able to reproduce it. But I would emphasize that they needed to find out the answers themselves. And that the first homework I gave them was to formulate a question, which they thought was ridiculous. And they thought they were getting off easy because they didn't have to study anything or learn anything by rote, they needed to write questions, which was ridiculous. And then I kept doing this thing where they would ask me a question and I'd say, well, how can we figure this out? Which a lot of irritating liberal parents do as well, right? Um, and at one point, this one boy, you know, is really super sharp, but um, had never been taught like that. And his hand shot up and he said, Ms. DeVard, you know, what is this or something? Um, what is that? And I, and I said, well, how do you think we can find out? And he just couldn't hold it in anymore. And he, and he just shouted out at me and he said, you don't never teach us nothing. And he was just furious at me because to him teaching was telling you how it is. And, and, and so to me, the thing is that that is the opposite of science, right? That telling somebody how it is and having them accept it, even if they don't understand it is the exact opposite. So everything that's opposite to that, to me, is science and gotcha uh and so questioning gotcha. absolutely everything uh, is is the essence of science and you don't need to go to college you don't even need to go to high school i mean you just need to trust in the fact that you can ask a question and then you can find help you can you can see who knows the answer to that question and you can pursue it right and you can figure out what other people have done and you can see what other people have understood you can read it and some of it you can read because you can read things like the scientific american or popular science magazines and other things are more difficult to understand if you don't have the math really math mm. and subject matter knowledge are the are the two biggest impediments to understanding everything there is to understand in science and math is math is mm. hard to come by if you don't learn it in a young age but many things have been explained without the math. Some things like quantum physics, which is something that a lot of people gravitate towards, even though they don't know, you know, classical mechanics, they want to understand quantum mechanics because it sounds exciting. Because there, there are a lot of words in parts of science that overlap with things that seem for us to have a deep meaning. The words like black hole or words mm. like uncertainty or words like chaos. These are exciting things. They're, they're, they're all hinting at something supernatural, we would like to say, even though they are very much natural, but they get this impression of sort of the edges of knowledge and, you know, being stoned and seeing weird shapes everywhere. They, 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 they seem to offer this sort of tantalizing glimpse of a word behind, world behind the veil and all of that. Um, whereas in actual fact, when you study black holes and you study quantum mechanics and you study chaos, all it is is math. 
and it's people using creative words, like using words for truth and beauty for the quarks, another great, mm. wonderful, uh, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty. These are the three uh, paragons of, of, of virtue in Russian as well. Um, and so some creative physicists came up with those, those words for, for, for the quarks, mm. which are the fundamental particles of the fundamental particles. Um, and, and so, you know, if you don't know the, the math and the theory behind it, you think that something tantalizing and uh, revolutionary is happening. It is, but it, but it's happening in math. Yes. Our, our brains are macroscopic, right? Our brains are about the size of like, you know, the order of magnitude of a meter uh, of a foot, you know, our, 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 our bodies are at a macroscopic level. That's how we define them. Um, and so things that are much, much smaller, or much, much bigger are very, very, or much, much shorter or longer in time than, than our human lifespan, which is, you know, a hundred years, a meter. These are things we get. Um, but all these things that are much, much smaller or much, much bigger are, are very difficult for our consciousness to comprehend because they're not embedded in our biological experience of reality. Similarly with cells and viruses, you know, we, we, we don't see those. We don't see them acting around us. Right. So it's, right. it's we can make an image of them, but the image, the way that humans form images is based on our on our, our living bodies in space. So anyway, all of this to say, so, any question can be answered by anyone. And the moment that you start answering your own questions and you only believe the answers that you truly deeply trust, you know, at that moment, you are a scientist, as far as I'm concerned, or you're, Practicing the scientific method, if you will, um, as long as you are honest about the questions and you're honest about being satisfied with the answer, um, and you don't worry about whether or not it's truth. It's truth. It's, it's truth if it works for you. It's sounding to me, and I'm as I'm fond of oversimplifying that a a scientist is more interested in how to think as opposed to what to think because that teacher was telling their students, okay, this is what you think. You learn how to spell this. You learn that there are cells and that boy who got angry, you never teach us nothing because he, nobody had ever even advanced the concept to him that look, you got to learn how to think. That's and, the first step of anything to being able to, to really, uh, yeah. you know, any of these facts that you're going to hear, you know, the, the, the mitochondria, blah, 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 that needs to be in a, a context right. that you understand. Otherwise, what, what use is it? When our oldest son started to learn jazz piano, um, and he started to understand chord structures and he, he'd come home from a jazz piano lesson or from watching someone and he'd excitedly try to explain to me, you know, why a rootless voicing was so unique. And I was like, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I don't know what a root is. I don't know what a voicing is. I don't, I don't. And it's not something that I've ever wondered about. So we, we all live, I think, in our own spheres of interest. There, there are things that we are interested in. And those are the sure. areas that we ask questions about. Sure. You got to have a knowledge of the subject and a language, knowledge of the language of the subject in order to think about something the way a scientist or artist or 
loosely anybody who is has a mind trained to engage in that field of endeavor if right. we want right. to if we want to 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 enlarge on that which i guess we do a hugely important concept is the concept of authority i'm making all these sweeping statements and there are many scientists who are watching this Sweep who are like away. <laughs> you know that's nonsense <laughs> and that's not a, but the concept fine. of taking something on authority to me, the, the essence of science is that you, you don't do that. You don't accept authority because it's authority. You want arguments to be brought forth that you find convincing if you want to achieve a certain standpoint. Many people who come from a background that is very dogmatic in whatever way, um, whether it's, it's communism or, or some very formal religion or what have you, they find it very liberating. But once you're, once you're in this world where you think I can question anything and I don't have to take anything on authority, I can myself determine what I believe and what I wish to follow. I think once you're there, there's no turning back. I don't, I don't think you can ever go back and now you know blindly follow anyone just because they are who they say they are, or they think they are quite something because of their, their position. Let's just talk about the United States of America. We've yeah. got this massive cult yeah. of science denial, which is, which is really uh, come to exact an absolutely appalling price in human life right in front of us. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do this now is that, you know, this is a big topic of discussion amongst us when humanists attack uh, people is, you know, what do we do? All yes. right, so the, 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 the presidential election is one, you know, the fight for Im imminent survival has been, has been one for the moment. Mm -hmm. So what do we do to get these people on board with the thinking of this century? It is a question that many, many scientists are asking themselves. Um, so I'm on a uh, committee that is called the, the, the Science, Technical and Medical Publishers Association. Um, I have a group that are called the Tech Trends Group and they talk about what are the big trends in technology for publishers of science and medical literature. Um, and they always do a, a brainstorm session. And this one was two weeks ago. And they asked a couple of questions of all the publishers beforehand, and they make a word cloud of all the answers. And usually it's about all kinds of technologies and search engines and AI and whatever, uh, mobile platforms. That was all past years. And this year we all, there were 40 of us and we all answered different questions, but they made the word cloud. And in the middle was one huge word and it was trust. So hmm. trust, and um, I'm also associated through, through Elsevier, hmm. we support the Harvard Data Science Initiative. And their hmm. big topic for next year is the word trust. Trust in science is the biggest issue um, and the most important topic to solve for not just science publishers, but for science scientists as well, and science scientists, funders, and the government and everything. So this matter of trust in science, we were living in a small world where we all assumed that we all knew um, what was what and what was right and what was wrong. And we were all participating in the doing and the business of science. Um, and we were very comfortable. 
Um, and that has burst. I think everybody is aware now of the fact that that is a small group of people who believe that that is the truth. I'm sort of science adjacent, I suppose, but to the scientists and the people surrounding science, the onus is on us to say, how can we increase the trust in science? How can we bring the understanding, you know, to everyone who is, who is there? How can we enhance the ways of thinking that serve us very well? Because I feel very confident in knowing what I know. I don't feel scared that there are tons of things that I don't know. And I think this lack of knowledge creates a lot of fear, which then creates people to cling to things that sound maybe absurd. But I think it, it's really driven by a fear of the unknown. So I guess to me, what would be kind of interesting is if you can think about this as how can you get more people to embrace what they don't know, right? It's more about not knowing than it is about knowing. Carl Sagan's library was donated to the Library of Congress and there was an event and I was very lucky to be invited there. Everybody was talking about Carl Sagan and Carl Sagan played such a huge role because he would be on TV all the time. He was the scientist. He was kind of like somebody who was, had been beamed in from Spaceship Enterprise. He was a wacky guy and he smoked pot, but he was a very visible, popular figure who was on there with the talk show hosts and with the presidents and with the, you know, the popular culture figures who would bring this voice of science to the table. Collectively, we try to see what are moments, what are places where people are, are interested in hearing a scientist's perspective and interest. And, and, and then of course you need the right people. You need people, hopefully not just white men mm. um, who bring this story to everywhere. You need, scientists on TikTok, like many. Um, you need scientists in all the platforms that all the kids are doing and that all the adults are doing. Um, and just to, I, to me, the big, the big thing I'd like to say is don't be afraid of what you don't know. If, if you can, in fact, enjoy what you don't know, if you, can, if you can be sort of thrilled by the fact you don't know and maybe start to get to know some of it, you know, I mean, that to me is the big, sort of the big differential. Um, and I, I, I think that's has only just begun. But that's a tough sell. Yeah, it's, a, it's a huge, tough but sell. I think it's, it's healthy at least for scientists. And like I said, for science adjacent professions like my own, that we see that this is our problem to help address. I, as a queer man, uh, can't just say, well, I don't wanna, I'm sick of, educating all of these non-queer people about the queer issues. I'm just tired of it. Well, tough, <laughs> you know, I'm the one who knows about it. So if I want people to know about it, it doesn't matter if I want to do it or right. not. I'm the, you know, the one who has to shoulder this. And that would be what you scientists and science adjacent people <laughs> have to do. Otherwise, uh, you know, otherwise you're going to be at the mercy of people who think that the world is 6,000 years old. And these people are eventually going to become powerful enough that it will start impacting your lives. They're going to cut off well, funding. I, They're yeah. going to do things 
once they get enough power, they're going to do stuff that you don't want them to do. In a sense, it's kind of an intellectual socialism, right? You have a big gap between some people who know a lot and then a lot of people who do not embrace this lack of knowledge yet. So, you know, and it's one of those like, if they're not free, then none of us are free kind of a thing, I think. So I think it's also just a... Um, it's important not to be, the word arrogant is used a lot for liberals and certainly used a lot for scientists, but it is important not to be arrogant and not to think that there is an inherent superiority. And I think many great scientists, unfortunately, though they're great, they will not you know, realize that they'll not be humble to that degree possibly because this, the, 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 the intellectual gain, that's what you do, you know? I mean, that's what you do, that's how you score, that's how you, how you um, are evaluated, that is a lot of your self-worth is in that. And so if you see people where that game is, is denounced, the whole game is denounced, it's, it's very upsetting. And it, it gives you the impression of like, well, you know, screw you, I don't need to talk to you. You don't even acknowledge that my game is important. Anita, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> it was really fun. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk more yeah, at some point. This is fun. Ladies, gentlemen, all others, Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for speaking to us <laughs> from the highly polished deck of the Death Star. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we hope that you've enjoyed watching this, one of hopefully many times that we shall discuss the ins and outs of science and how to, how to increase trust in science. I'm gonna have to ponder that very specifically how that was phrased. I'm gonna have to think of that myself. That puts it perfectly. Please, any of you watching this, give that some thought, put it in the comments, subscribe. <laughs> if you like what we're doing here at When Humanists Attack. Click the little bell so that you'll be among the very first to hear about our new stuff and look at all of the other things, the subreddit and all of the other goodies that we've got to help you think more widely, and better and ever more humbly such as us. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, <laughs> I bid you a good video. <laughs> no.